Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 to 14. Verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man by faith shall live. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we come now to the reading of your word and the study of your word, we realize that we are treading in an area, Lord, that is so deep and we are so shallow and our thinking is so dull and we're so wishy-washy, Lord, but yet you and your word remains forever. And it's so deep and so high above our own thoughts and our own ways. And I just pray that this morning, Lord, as we just discuss this passage and we think about it, Lord, I pray that you would give us illumination. And by your spirit, you would help us to understand and you would take this word and put it in our hearts and store it away, Lord, that we would be able to recall it and remember it and rejoice in it each day. Please transform us by the renewing of our minds, Father. Help us all. We are in desperate need of your help in understanding these deep things. Thank you for the privilege of gathering and singing and rejoicing in you together. Thank you for the unity we have Thank you for the privilege of feeding on your word. Lord, may all of this turn to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our passage this morning immediately confronts us with the unpleasant subject of curses. It immediately confronts us with the unpleasant subject of curses. How many of you like the subject of curses? That's one of your favorite subjects, right? Now, when we think of curses, we typically think of a few things. We think of witches, right? And they have magic spells. And when they don't like somebody, they curse them. And these witches have magic powers that they can arbitrarily curse someone that they don't like. The person doesn't necessarily deserve it. They just curse them. And then they're cursed. I think of a famous story like this. I'm sure you're all familiar with Sleeping Beauty, right? And this little baby is cursed by the witch, you remember? Because this fairy, evil fairy witch 
is upset that she didn't get invited to the party. And so she puts a curse upon the little baby so that when she grows up in 16, she's going to touch a, a spindle. It's going to put her into a debt. She's going to die and, you know, that whole thing. So when we think of curses, we sometimes think of these, these magic spells that are done arbitrarily by witches. Another way that we think of cur curses typically is profanity. How many of you use the word curse? Like, don't curse when someone says a profane word, right? There's another word we use around here. It's called cussing, right? Cussing. Cussing is actually a semantically retrograded form of cursing. When someone says they're cussing, it's just a deformed version of the word curse. So when we think of cursing, you know, there's all these different directions we can go in our minds. But biblically, neither magic spells nor cussing is what cursing is all about. And we need to not think of cursing in those ways. When we think about cursing biblically, we should think of cursing as malediction. Malediction. What that means is, is to speak evil of or to someone. Webster defines malediction and cursing as the expression of a wish of evil toward another. I wish you'd just die, right? Or may you burn in hell, right? Or go to hell, sometimes people say. This is what malediction is. Diction, the way we speak, and the word malad, evil, or badly. It's the opposite of benediction. Benediction is synonymous with blessing. So when you bless someone, you're giving them a benediction. You're speaking well of or well toward them. May good come your way. May God bless you with plenty. May God give you health. This is what a benediction or a blessing is. And it's in this sense that the Bible speaks of blessing and of cursing. Malediction and benediction. Who's the first in the Bible to bless, to give benediction? God, right? God. In Genesis chapter 1, let's turn there, and we'll see God's, the first blessing, the first benediction. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll just look at one that represents the many times God says this. Verse 22. This is God saying it to the creatures, to the animals. God gives a benediction, a blessing, to animals. It's amazing. That should change the way we think about animals. You know, that should make us think well of animals too. In verse 22, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Notice that's not a commandment. That's a blessing. Sometimes people think that be fruitful and multiply is a commandment. God's saying, do it. But it's actually a benediction and a blessing. This is something wonderful for you. I'm giving this blessing to you. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing. And he says it to us as well. So it, it's not a commandment. It's something that God has given us as a blessing through his speech and through his words. And so God says it to the animals. God says it to us. Now, God is all, who's the first in the Bible to curse? God. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. And we should all know this is the chapter when 
Adam and Eve have been caught red-handed, right? And God comes to them, and they have these silly excuses, right? And after they've exhausted their excuses, God proceeds to give malediction, that is, cursing. Verse 14, the Lord, said to the, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. That means, I give you malediction. And more than every other beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat. That's the malediction. You will go on your belly and eat dust. The serpent, you will be worse off than any other creature. All the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. It's interesting that Satan's destruction is included in the original malediction that God gave to him when Christ came and died and crushed the head of the serpent. That's included in the malediction, in the curse. Of course, in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. Here's his malediction. You, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then in verse 17, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Why do we die? Malediction. Because God cursed the ground and sentenced us by his speech to death for our sins. When God speaks, brothers and sisters, things happen, don't they? Because there's power in God's word and in God's will. Be fruitful and multiply. It happened. Cursed be the ground for your sake, and to dust you will return. It happened. When we speak, do things always happen? Do we have power in our words and will like God does? When we give malediction, when we give benediction, can you just... Can you just start speaking benedictions over your house and everything happens the way that you said it would happen? Some people think so, but that's not true. When God speaks, things happen, and God always speaks what is right. Amen? So when God curses, when God curses, does God ever curse wrongly? Does he ever curse in an, inju in an unjust way? Or in an unjust way? Does he ever tell someone, and give them something that they don't deserve. No. And it's the same when God blesses. It's always never unjust. But human beings, on the other hand, we bless and we curse. We have no power, nor do we always bless and curse rightly. Amen? No, nor do we always bless and curse rightly. Jesus said, uh, happy are you when men revile you and curse you. Right? They're cursing you wrongly. Because men are not just like God. Turn to Proverbs 26, verse 2. Proverbs 26, verse 2. 
And this proverb shows us that there is no power in a curse when it is an unjust curse. When the curse is not right, there's no power in it. Proverbs 26, verse 2. This is a freeing verse, by the way. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause, what? Doesn't alight. Doesn't come down. Doesn't rest. A curse without a cause doesn't do anything. Think about Goliath. When David and Goliath are facing off, it says specifically in that text that after Goliath is ticked off with David, what's this, am I a dog that you're coming against me with sticks? He's so mad. It says in the, in the scriptures that Goliath curses David by all of the names of his gods. So he just calls on all of his gods. He says, may you be cursed and may you die and may you die miserably at my hand and may the gods smite you and may the gods feed your flesh to the birds of the air. And he just curses him with every curse he knows in his book. Do they happen? No. <laughs> they don't happen. There's no power in those curses. There's no power in those gods. There's no power in Goliath's words and there's no cause. Matthew Henry comments, he that is cursed without cause, whether by furious imprecations or solemn anathemas. So Matthew Henry's even including, say, when the Catholic Church said, if you say this, anathema. If you do this, anathema. If you think this, anathema. He says, all of that, the curse shall do him no more harm than the bird that flies over his head than Goliath's curses did to David. Matthew Henry says, won't be a problem. It's good news, isn't it? How many of you sometimes are a little superstitious? right? And you think, man, if I run into a witch one day and she tries to catch a curse on me and does the voodoo thing and stabs me with the, makes a doll out of me and picks me, maybe something's going to happen to me, right? Why is all that kind of thinking wrong? Because all of that superstition, if I walk under a ladder, you know, then bad things are going to happen to me. If I break a mirror, bad things are going to happen to me. If I spill salt, bad things are going to happen to me because someone cursed that, or, you know, back in the day there was a curse. We think that because we fail to recognize that God is in control of all things. What kind of a world is it? If, if, if people could just curse you, and all that superstition stuff was true, and God loves you, and God says, I'll take care of you, and I watch over you, and I'm the one who's in control of all things, and if we start getting afraid by these superstitious things, we're really just not trusting in the fact that God's actually in control of all things. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm kind of a superstitious guy sometimes, you know, and I hear those, those common sayings of walk under a ladder and this is bad things. And so sometimes if I have to walk under a ladder, I'll, I'll stop and I'll think about that and say, well, God's in control and I'll keep walking, right? <laughs> right? A curse without a cause will come to nothing. Numbers 23, verse 8, Balaam is hired by Balak to curse Israel. Come here and curse them. When you curse them, then they'll not be able to defeat us. And what does Balaam say? I can't curse whom God has blessed, right? God's given a benediction towards his people. What can I do? I can't do anything. And so what does he do? He blesses them. He can only bless whom God has blessed. He can only say what God has said. A curse is only effective if it is an expression of God's cursing and justice, and so also is a, is a blessing, only insofar as it lines up with God's mind yes yeah he later he later tries to to help uh, israel's downfall and he actually dies you know nothing comes of it it's 
Not our words that matter, brothers and sisters. It's God's words that matter. What comes out of God's mouth is what's ultimately important. However, what comes out of our mouth reveals our hearts, whether they are in line with God or whether they are not. It is wrong to curse what God has blessed. Amen? It's wrong to speak malediction against what God has spoken benediction. And it's also wrong to give benediction to what God has given malediction. Amen? It's God to speak well of and to wish well of that which God does not wish well of. And God, what God says, no, that is not good. And therefore, it's wrong for us to say it's good. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. Why? Because God had blessed Abraham. He said, I'll bless you. And so, if you go against me, and you start cursing that which I've blessed, you're sinning. You'll be cursed. But blessed are you, if in your heart is God's thoughts and you express benediction towards what God expresses blessing. The passage before us, Galatians chapter 3, let's go back there, is talking about cursing. And there's a shocking thing here. Verse 10 is so radically shocking. It always amazes me when people who aren't Christians but who claim to believe in the Bible say, I believe in the Bible, you know? It always amazes me because I know they don't, they're not reading it, you know? They're not noticing because there's so many things in here that they totally don't agree with. And look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. As many as are of the works of the law. If you belong to the law, if you're of that system, if, that, if, that's, if the law and you are together and you have something to do with that, you are under a curse. Wow. That is not the common way of thinking at all, is it? For the common way of thinking is actually, if you are of the law, you're in the way of blessing, right? Paul says, if you're of the law, you're under a curse. Whereas many people would say, commonly, if you're of the law, you're in a blessing. And here's what they would say. Well, hold on here, Paul. What are you talking about? Remember, Paul, there's not just curses in the law. There's also blessings in the law. The law says that if you obey it, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey it, you'll be cursed. So don't just lump the law in with cursing, Paul. That's wrong. If we keep the law, we'll be blessed, Paul. So not everyone who's of the law will be cursed. It's only those who break the law who are cursed, Paul. But if you are of the law and keeping the law, no problem. It's the lawbreakers. It's the terrorists. It's the harlots. It's the thieves. These are the ones who are cursed, not just those who are of the law. The law is our, our hope of blessing. And Paul says, no. If you're of the law, you're cursed. That's an excellent question, and we're going to get to that. I want to make a point of clarification at this point, because there are many people who are of the law, and they actually think they are blessed. But here's their thinking. They think, what are you talking about, Paul? If you're of the law, you're cursed. Because I can testify in my own life, when I do the things that the law tells me to do, man, things are good in life, right? I mean, the law says to, to love... Uh, to, to not commit adultery. 
And I can testify that when I'm faithful to my wife, there's, there's blessing in the home. There's good consequences there. And if I commit adultery, then there's bad things that happen, right? And who's going to disagree with this? Anybody? So we need to make a clarification that many people think blessing, when they think blessing, they just think good consequences. But that's not what blessing and cursing is here in the Bible. I like to use this word. That's platitudinal. What I mean is, that sounds profound, but it's not profound. That's a no-brainer. An atheist could figure that one out, right? Yeah, there's things you can do, and they'll give you good consequences, and you'll, there's things that you can do, and they'll give you bad consequences. I get it. I get it. That's, that's not what the Scriptures is saying here. The law is not just talking mechanically, like, hey, don't commit adultery. Good things will ha- happen if you don't. This is, this is moral. This is about desserts. This is about blessing and cursing from God. This is about recompense, not just good consequences. Meaning, if you disobey the law, man, you deserve a malediction from God. It's not just something bad's going to happen naturally, but God curses you. God himself turns against you. But if you obey the law, man, it's not just that something good happens. I mean, atheists can figure that one out. But God actually turns to you in favor and gives you benediction and blesses you. And it's a recompense. It's giving you back what you deserve. If not in this life, then later. This is what blessing and cursing is. It's from God. Now, in verse 10, Paul proves his point from the scripture. He shows the nature of the law and what is required by the law in order to obtain the blessing. Here's what he says. As many as are of, who are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's the nature of the law. Cursed is, are all those who don't abide. The word abide is very important. Paul basically is saying, God draws a circle around you. And he says, stay in this circle. And if you stay in this circle, you'll be blessed. If you step outside of this circle, you'll be cursed. And you say, oh, what's the circle? All things that I've commanded you. You do everything that I've commanded you, and you'll stay right here, and I'll bless you. You, step, you, you don't do everything that I've commanded you, and you step out, and you will be cursed. This is what the word trespass and transgression means, by the way. All trespass and transgression mean... If you trace the word etymologically, it simply means to go over or go beyond or to cross over. So to trespass, if you don't keep everything that the law says, you've just trespassed the law. If you don't do everything that God requires, you've transgressed the law. You've gone out of bounds, the bounds that God has set. And you become a lawbreaker, a violator of the law, and therefore you're cursed. Now, the question you asked, Jill, is this just the Ten Commandments? Well, look at verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. He doesn't just say the Ten Commandments, but everything that is written in the book of the law. Now, what is written in the book of the law? Just the Ten Commandments? No. Um, just the ceremonial stuff? Is, is the law just ceremonial? Is that all Paul's talking about? No. If we were to say, all Paul, as some do, all Paul's talking about here is sacrifices and stuff like that, you know, circumcision. Excuse me. That is not all that is written in the book of the law. And in fact, if you go to the quotation, which is in Deuteronomy, 
uh, chapter 27, verse 26, you're going to see that the quotation actually comes from a section where Paul's talking about moral things, not ceremonial things at all. So no, there, you can't get out of this sticky situation here, this curse, by trying to minimize what the law is. All things that the law says. In Matthew 23, 23, you've got to remember the Pharisees were criticized by Jesus. And he says, you guys, you guys do all the ceremonial stuff, you know? I can't fault you there. You do all the ceremonial stuff, but here's what you don't do. Or here's what you really are doing. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, love. That's what the law is all about. And Jesus repeatedly taught that the law was all about loving God and your neighbor perfectly as God intended you to love them when he created you. So the law is fundamentally about love. And everything hangs upon that. And Paul's not just talking about ceremonial things here but the law in total. And look what it says in verse 10. What are you supposed to do with this total law? You're supposed to do it in verse 10. You're cursed if you don't perform all things. Perform them, not just hear them. It's not cursed are those who don't hear all things that the law says. Cursed are those who don't say how nice this law is, right? But cursed are those who do not do it. How many of you believe that the law is a beautiful thing? That to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself is beautiful? How many of you know? Yep. How many of you know that the world would be a great place if we all did that? And you can hardly say, hardly assent and say, the law is awesome. Beautiful. Fantastic. How many in your conscience know you should do it? You should love God and your neighbor perfectly, right? I feel it every day. Now, show of hands, how many do it? How many perform it? How many of you or us, don't transgress. How many of you abide in the circle that God drew around you? Anybody? Nope. And so guess what? If you're of the law, and that's your hope, and that's your way, and that's your method of salvation, you're cursed, the, the Bible says. You receive not just bad consequences, naturally, but God himself gives the malediction. Isn't that what Judgment Day is all about? Judgment Day isn't just you getting what's kind of the natural consequences. Judgment Day is God, the judge, evaluating you and giving you a malediction or a benediction, isn't it? Based upon what you deserve. Understanding the nature of the law is perhaps one of the most important things that a person can understand. And if you read the Gospels, and if you read the Epistles, and if you read the Prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find that Jesus, the Prophets, and the Apostles were all about explaining the true nature of the law and showing people, you think that there's hope in the law, and there isn't. You think that you're obedient to the law, but you're not. Because let me tell you what the real nature of the law is. Let me show you what the real circle is. Let me show you what God actually is requiring in his commandments. And let me show you that we have all sinned, and none of us are good. We've all transgressed. All of the apostles, prophets, and Jesus taught this. 
And it's safe to say, brothers and sisters, that if you don't know the nature of the law, then you can't be a Christian. If you don't know what the law requires, then you don't know your need for Jesus, right? Why would you go to Jesus for salvation if you think that you're already good and that you're already doing it? And it's also safe to say that if you know the law, then it's very likely that you're a Christian. <laughs> because if you know the law, then you've realized, I have no hope here. You're either on your way to Jesus looking for that hope, or you've already found him, if you know the law. In Jeremiah 31, 33, as part of the new covenant, God actually says that everyone who belongs to the new covenant will know the law. I'll put my law into their hearts and into their minds. What that means is everyone a part of the new covenant will know my law. And they won't just go off of the teachings of men and the traditions of men, but they're going to know what I actually commanded and it's going to be in their heart and in their mind. They're going to get it. And that's precisely why we as Christians go to Jesus because we understand the law. Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not moving away from the law, but it's moving toward it in truth. It's moving away from justification by law, but it's not moving away from the law. It's actually embracing the law and seeing it for what it is, right? Before you become a Christian, you don't know what the law is. Oh, keep the commandments. That doesn't mean you have to, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect and we all make mistakes and it's okay because you can just try again. and It's all just natural consequences. No, 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 no. Christianity is opening your eyes to realize what the true nature of the law is, and you embrace that truth. It comes into your mind and heart, and you lose the law as a way of justification, right? Look at Galatians 2.19. We looked at this when we were in chapter 2. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live unto God. So it's through the law. It's by coming to the law in truth. The law actually teaches me that I need to die to it as a way of justification. The law is glorious. It's the gift from Mount Sinai. It's not temporary and it's not elementary. It's the enduring revelation of God's righteous standard. And to denigrate his law is to denigrate God himself. And brothers and sisters, you can't come with a higher law than what came at Mount Sinai. Because remember, what came at Mount Sinai, Jesus said, was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors, yourself, and whatever other commandments, they all hang upon those two. That's Mount Sinai for you. It's the holy law of God. Have you as a Christian seen that and embraced it and said, amen, that's the law. Beautiful. I love it. Psalm 119, Amen. Blessed are those who know your law. The law is beautiful. The law instructs me. The law teaches me. The law is wonderful. We're not saying we're saved by the law at all. We're saying we see the truth about righteousness by the law, the truth about my sin, the truth about God's standard, and it teaches me to go to Jesus. Some say Jesus came to bring a higher law, but I'd like to ask, how would a higher law help when none of us even keep the lower law, which isn't lower at all. It'd be a shallow thing to say it's a lower thing. Jesus did a lot of time explaining the law and correcting our understanding of it, and this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's saying, Galatians, do not go to the law as the way of justification. You clearly are not understanding the nature of the law. So in verse 10, 
Paul is showing that we cannot be justified through the law because according to the nature of the law, the law requires perfection, perfect love, and none of us are righteous. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Paul moves to a second argument from the scripture why we cannot be justified by law. And again, he points to the nature of the law. Just like in verse 10, he points to the nature of the law. He says in verse 11 and 12, I'm going to show you, Paul says something about the nature of the law. The, the law requires doing, not believing. True? The law requires doing, not believing. But, Paul says, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous by faith will live. Paul, here in verse 11 and 12, compares two scriptures, Habakkuk 2.4 and Leviticus 18.12. He uses these verses as representative views of, of teaching there in the Old Testament. In verse 11, he says, Justification through the law is evidently false because according to Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous through faith will live. Now we might ask, what? How is justification through law evidently false on the basis of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous through faith will live. So the first thing we need to do is look at Habakkuk 2.4. There's two things to point out about this statement, the righteous man through faith will live. First, in many of our Bibles, it's written like this, the righteous man shall live by faith. Do you see it that way? Do you notice I said it differently? The righteous man shall live by faith. Now it's interesting that um, the Hebrew and the Greek can actually be read differently. And many scholars argue it should be read differently. It should be, the righteous man by faith will live. The righteous man by faith will live. There's a little bit of a difference. Uh, one is, it, it's saying, if you're righteous, you will live by faith. If you're already righteous, and it doesn't tell you how you got righteous, Righteous people will live by faith. The other way is the righteous by faith, right? How are they righteous? By faith. The righteous by faith will live and not die. So it's not talking about your behavior here. It's talking about your salvation. The righteous by faith will live and not die. And I agree with many scholars that that's the way it should be read. The righteous by faith will live. I think that's the only way of reading it that really makes sense with the context here in Galatians and in Habakkuk. The righteous by faith will live. And so what we are seeing, when we see it this way, Paul's argument comes into focus. If it's the righteous by faith who will live, and in verse 12, the law is not of faith, if people are righteous by faith, according to Scripture, but the law isn't a method of faith, then clearly people are not righteous by law because they're righteous by faith. And the law isn't a way of faith. It says in the law, he who does it will live. He who practices it will live, not he who believes. Now, of course, one might argue, well, don't you have to believe that the law is from God in order to obey it? So isn't there some faith when it comes to keeping the law? And you might say, sure, yeah, you've got to believe that the law is from God, and you've got to believe that you should keep the law. But get this, you can believe all the day long that the law is from God and you should obey it. Are you going to be righteous or blessed by believing according to the law? 
I believe God gave the law. And I believe I should keep the law. Am I righteous and blessed? No. Because where does the blessing and righteousness come according to the law? The one who does it. So you can have two people. They both believe the law is from God and we should do it. And hypothetically, one keeps it and one doesn't. The one who keeps it is blessed. The one who doesn't is cursed. So the law isn't about believing. It's about doing. It's about performing. But no one will be righteous through the law because the righteous by faith will live. Habakkuk says, no, blessing comes through believing. There is an intrinsic difference between believing and doing, between the gospel and the law. One says, I got news for you. God's got a promise, and we believe it. And the other says, I've got rules for you. Here are the orders, right? There's a difference between believing news and believing a promise and putting your trust in that and hearing a set of things that you need to do in order to be blessed, right? The law says do, and you'll be blessed. The gospel says believe, and you'll be blessed. And there's a big difference. And the scripture says the righteous through faith will live. And therefore, it cannot be righteousness by doing or by the law. And so Paul has given us here two reasons based on the nature of the law why we are not justified through law. Because one, to be justified through the law, you have to be perfect. And two, the scripture says we're justified through faith. He previously gave us two reasons which we looked at uh, in the last two weeks that justification by faith is shown by your own personal experience. When did you receive the spirit of sonship? When did you get hope and peace? And also it's shown by Abraham's experience. How was Abraham justified? Through the law or through faith? Through faith and not through the law. And now finally, Paul turns in verse 13 and 14 and look at those with me to the crux of the matter. And that is, how is it that we are justified through faith? Okay, it's now established. We are not justified through the law. That doesn't work. And that we are justified through faith. That's the scripture. That's our experience, and that's what Abraham, what happened with him. But how does that work? Why are we justified through faith? What is the power of salvation by faith? What gives justification through faith its ability to save us? What news what promise could possibly come to deliver us from the law, which is wide and inviolable, and the curse is deep? So here we are all condemned by the law, for we're all under the law, we're all required to keep the law, we're all guilty, we're all transgressors, we're all cursed. What news could you possibly give me that would give me salvation? That I could just believe and be saved? Come on. What news is really going to change this seemingly unchangeable situation. And Paul tells us in verse 13, Christ. Do you believe that Christ, by what he did, has done something so extraordinary that without him, there was, no, there was nothing you could have believed or done that could have got you out of the mess that you were in, right? Without Christ, I could come with a million promises all the lived on long day and you could believe in them. And guess what? The curse isn't going anywhere because you deserve to be cursed. That's what you deserve. God doesn't give curses undeservedly. There's nothing 
that could be said. But Christ, he, Paul says, what has he done? He has ransomed us from the curse of the law. Wow. How many of you have ever been in a hostage situation? Probably none of us, right? So this probably doesn't hit us as strongly as it should. But I bet, I bet if you were in a real-life hostage situation and all that was the problem was you were just kidnapped unfairly by some thug and you're scared, right? You don't want to die. He's got a gun in your head, a knife to your throat. And you're scared. You want to get back to peace and safety, right? You don't want to die. You're hoping that the police are going to figure something out and save you, right? You're scared. And you're, you're there unfairly. You don't even deserve to be in that situation. But here you are in a very different hostage situation, right? First of all, your life isn't the only thing that's in danger. It's your eternal soul. That's a lot more scary than losing your life. How many of you know the thought of going to hell is scarier than the thought of dying? And guess what? You deserve to be in that hostage situation. <laughs> you're not like, I hope they come and save me because I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> you know? It's like, you're going to hell and that's what you deserve. Why should anybody save you? And here we read, Christ has ransomed us. Now, I wonder what price he had to pay, you know, $5 million, $6 billion. How do you get ransomed from the curse of the law when it's something that you deserve and it's God's justice that's the deal here? A ransom means that person, party A, makes a payment to party B, releasing party C. The curse of the law is the curse that we're all under according to 3.10. We are all under the curse of the law for God requires that perfect love of his creatures that he made in his image. And none of us do it. And so we're all cursed. We're party C, hostage to party B, the curse of the law. God's justice. And the fascinating thing here is that there's nothing we can do to walk away from the law and say, God, I quit. I didn't sign up for this. This is our wages that is our due. And the fascinating thing is Christ didn't come into the world to save us and to fix an injustice. He didn't come and say, these guys are wrongly hostages. I'm coming to save them. I'm fixing an injustice here. There's, there's justice. He came because he loves us. And because he doesn't want, think about it, you deserve to die. You deserve to go to hell. And he doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to save you. Even though you deserve it, he cares about you. You have a God who cares about you. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son to save us. And how did he ransom us? According to verse 13, Christ ransomed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Notice, for us. There's no greater mystery here in the Bible, brothers and sisters. This is the mystery of all mysteries. How did he save us? By becoming a curse on our behalf. The Son of God, without any sin, 
became a curse. The Son of God to whom God had only good things to say, right? God had just benedictions for his son. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Ask what you want and I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance. Nothing but good. But here he became a curse. Charles Spurgeon said, The whole pith and marrow of the religion of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. Do you believe that? The whole pith and marrow of the religion of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. If we take this out of our Christianity, we don't have any Christianity left. You take out Christ ransoming us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. You say, let's remove that. I don't like that idea. Well, guess what? You're going to have to now uh, get rid of the law. Right? You're going to have to get rid of God's justice. You're going to get rid of his wrath. Get rid of our sin. Get rid of his love. Why don't you just throw Christianity out the window and start a new religion? Because if you get rid of this, you lose it all. And what this means, this substitution means that God spoke a malediction toward his son, Jesus Christ, and marked this not on account of his own sin, but on account of ours. Think about that for a minute. Wow. That must have been hard for both of them. The biblical language here is this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And we've turned each one to our own way. Wicked sheep. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Laid upon him our sins. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Whose sins did he bear? Eli's. Who's bearing my sins? My curse, the malediction that rightly should come to me, he was receiving. Amazing. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? Because he loves us. I hope you feel loved whenever you read about the death of Jesus. Don't you think it would be a tragedy if we didn't feel loved every time we read about the death of Jesus? When that's exactly what God wants to show us. Is, I love you. I love you. I love you. You don't deserve this. I just care about you. I did this to save you. I took this curse for you. I hung there. I sent my son. The father says, because of my justice, something had to be done. He put our sins on him. He made him our sin and brought the full weight of the curse of the law down upon Jesus' head for us. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the sacrifice given to satisfy God's law and to ransom us from the wrath of God and the justice of God and the law of God. And that's how he did it, by becoming a curse. And Paul says, For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Donald Campbell, one commentator, writes this. The confirming quotation from Deuteronomy 21-23 refers to the fact that in the Old Testament times, criminals were executed and then displayed on a stake or post to show God's divine rejection. When Christ was crucified, it was evidence 
He had, become, he had come under the curse of God. The manner of his death was a great obstacle to faith for Jews until they realized the curse he bore was for them. Amazing. So they looked at the cross. The Jews do this, even to this day. Jesus hung on a cross. That means he's cursed of God. How can you say he's the Messiah? How can you say he's good? How can you say he's righteous? How can you say he's God? He hung on the cross, cursed of God. God couldn't have spoke louder or clearer that he's rejected of God. No, don't go down the road of Jesus. And what do we Christians say? True, Jesus was cursed of God. It's true. He bore the rejection of God. He was the curse of God. But he did it for us. He became a curse for us. It wasn't his own sin. It wasn't his own self. It was him doing exactly what Isaiah said he would do. Taking our sins and being wounded for our transgressions so that we could be healed. For this is what verse 14 says. He became a curse for us in order that blessing may come which means that blessing cannot come to you from God. No benediction for you, sinner, apart from Jesus becoming a curse for you. Wow, I'm thankful for, for Jesus. I'm thankful for Jesus doing that thing that he didn't have to do so that I could be blessed and not cursed. And it's by this we're saved, brothers and sisters, not by our works, not by our obedience, not by our law-keeping are we blessed and receive benediction. Amen? But through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. To say that justification is through law is really to smack Christ in the face and to call his death unnecessary rather than to see that he took the malediction, so that we would receive God's benediction and that that was the only way. Christ crucified, the Bible tells us, is the power of God unto salvation. This is the ability here. This is why we who are under the curse can receive news that can set us free when it is believed because that news is the news of the death of Jesus for our sins and his glorious triumph over death and his resurrection. Notice it says in verse 14 that the blessing might come to the Gentiles. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice you don't have to go fetch it, do you? It comes to you. The news just comes to you. He did it. And now the gospel goes out to sinners who don't deserve it. It comes to you. And all we do is we either believe or we don't believe. That's it. We trust in Christ or we trust in ourselves. That's your only two options. You either say, I received this gift. God is just, and I am a sinner, and this is wonderful news, and I put my hope in it. Or you say, I'm not really that bad, and I don't think God requires perfection. I know the law says it all over the place, but I don't think it really means that. And I don't, I, I'll, Well, okay, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, but I still think that the law doesn't require perfection. Some of my works still have to be there. And this, that... He became a curse for you so you could be blessed. 
Worship God for what he's done. Thank God for what he's done. Receive what he's done. And don't denigrate what he's done by trying to say that you could have done something or must do something. I'd like to just close with seven practical implications real quick. What are some practical implications, some practical things we can take away from this wonderful truth? First of all, and this is as practical as it gets, and I say this from my own personal experience, we can have peace as Christians knowing that even when we sin, we are blessed and not cursed by God. Amen? How many of you is that like just so practical and, and, and you're so thankful and happy for that? You can have peace even when you sin. Not because sin is no big deal, right? But because he took the curse for us and God has benediction for us even though we're sinners as Christians. So the next time you sin, don't downplay your sin, but magnify the cross of Christ and give God thanks that he speaks benediction over you. Secondly, we can refrain from judging others, knowing that the standard is perfect love, right? That's something practical. Next time you see another person sin, don't say, oh, they're so bad. They're, what a horrible person. What's wrong with that person? You know, And I'm not hanging out with that person anymore. They don't deserve my friendship. If we think about what God has done for us, we think, wow, I'm not any better than that person over there. Yeah, what they did was wrong. I do wrong things too. Man, God requires perfection. It's a good thing Jesus died for us and that God was a friend when we didn't deserve it. That's practical. Thirdly, we can see through the masks of self-righteous people, that the, the masks that self-righteous people are wearing and know that they need Christ. No matter who you are, the need is Christ. And as Christians, we have the news, don't we? To give to everyone. So when we see self-righteous people, we don't have to be deceived and say, oh, they seem so good. I, I think that they don't need Jesus, you know? We can say, no, no, no. All who are of the law are under a curse. And Jesus is what they need. And I have the news that will set them free. Fourthly, we always have with us something extraordinary to be thankful to God for. Amen? Ever get up in the morning and don't feel thankful? You've got something extraordinary to be thankful for. We should be thankful people. We always, fifthly, have a reason to worship God for all of his glorious attributes are displayed primarily in Jesus' death for us. Who, go, who is God? You can see him in Christ becoming a curse for you, the righteousness of God and the great love of God. That's always giving you a reason, not only to be thankful, but to fall on your face and worship God, the Holy One. Sixth, here's another practical one. We can always come before God in prayer knowing we are blameless and that God is our Father who loves us and who accepts us and who has blessed us. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we feel unworthy to pray, right? Oh, I just can't come before God. He's disappointed with me. He's not happy with me. The Bible says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Let us come boldly. We have confident 
access through faith in him. And why? Because we're so good? No. Because of the blood of Christ that was shed to cleanse us from our sins so that we can come before the righteous and holy God. So here's a practical thing. Every day you can, you can come to God in prayer, talk to him, commune to him, lay your requests before him. He's listening. He loves you. Your sin doesn't get in the way there because of Jesus. And lastly, we have an example to follow, to love those who wrong us. So Jesus says, bless those who curse you. So when someone says, I wish you'd go to hell, he says, I wish you'd go to heaven, right? <laughs> I wish that, may you come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved, you know? Yeah, you're a sinner on your way to hell, but you are a valuable person, you know? And God wants to bless you. Come into salvation. In a world where people are throwing around unjust maledictions all the time. And sometimes they are deserved, right? May we as Christians be people who seek to bless and not curse others whom God also uh, desires to bless as well. Jesus took our curse, amen? That's our hope. That's why we're here. That's why we're safe and that's why we're glad. He did it that we might be blessed. So let's enjoy that blessing, brothers and sisters, and live our lives in the light of this amazing, liberating, life-giving, God-glorifying truth. Let's pray. Father, there are no words that can do justice to what you have done for us in Christ. None of us truly, fully understand the weight of our sin. We're all triflers when it comes to understanding sin, Lord. But Lord, we do thank you for giving us the ability to see that we needed Christ, for you are a righteous God. And I pray for us all here that, Lord, as you have spoken benediction toward us through Jesus, we would, each one of us who are Christians, enjoy that benediction that you have spoken and every day realize that we are blessed because of faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice and be thankful and to worship you and to think much about how you took the curse for us. Help us to rejoice when we think about our standing with you, Lord. We give you thanks and praise. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your grace, Lord. And thank you for this wonderful news that you have given to us. We praise you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.